0: a DIY manual for the construction of stories by Steve Almond, available from Zando. Go get your copy right now, wherever you buy books. Hey folks, the other people podcast is offered freely. All episodes of this program are available for free. You are invited to support the show at patreon.com slash other PPL pod. Become a supporter of the podcast at Patreon. Dot com slash other PPL pod. Thanks.
1: You are not alone. You have found other people you and I have a friend in
0: common. Every stupid thing that a writer could do, I've done. I think it's really beautiful. Jake, it was a struggle, you know. It was incredible. It was like your head exploded to see what was really there. And now here's your host, Brad Listy. Just, just everybody, one how's it going? <laughs> right. Welcome to the Other People Podcast. I'm Brad Listy, and I'm here in Los Angeles. It's nice to be with you. Thank you for tuning in. I have an excellent and interesting show for you today, a little bit out of, I feel like, my normal mode somehow. Uh, Lori Gottlieb is on the program. She is a therapist and an author, and she has written a memoir called Maybe You Should Talk to Someone, a therapist, her therapist, and Our Lives Revealed. And I, I, I found this book really fascinating. I'm fascinated in the idea of talk therapy. I've only done it once in my life, but I think... You know, I'm interested in it in the same way that I'm interested in psychedelics, the same way that I'm interested in meditation. I'm interested in getting to know the life of my own mind and my emotions and all of the inner workings of myself. I think as writers and readerly people, this is uh, probably a common thread, right? And so here we have someone who is a trained therapist who has helped, uh, you know, hundreds and hundreds of people over the years and who herself has gone through some therapy and has written a book that offers a kind of prismatic perspective on the process. So I found it really fascinating. You sort of get a behind the scenes, look at the life of a therapist, the work that they do, the way that the um, emotional toll of the work can add up and affects them in ways that they might not necessarily show to their clients. Uh, and then also, you know, you get to kind of watch Lori openly grapple with some of her own difficulties, which, you know, for anyone who's ever tried to put that sort of stuff on the page, isn't always the easiest thing to do. And she does it with great, uh, openness and aplomb. So, uh, without any further ado, let's get to the conversation. This is Lori Gottlieb and her book again is called, maybe you should talk to someone. No, seriously, maybe you should talk to someone.
1: It's so profound what happens in the therapy room. And I don't mean every session is, but the experience of really getting to know someone and being able to hear them breathe and they can hear you breathe. And you don't ever wonder if something's going to ping or vibrate or there's going to be a notification that comes up. Um there's just the space between you. And to feel that energy in the room is something that I think is so rare outside of that room today. And it reminds me of when I was training, we were rushing, rushing, rushing to meet the requirements to get our 3,000 hours to be able to take sit for our exams. And a supervisor came by and she said, you know what? The speed of light is outdated. Now everybody operates at the speed of want. And I think that we weren't paying attention to it. Um, You know, we're not going to get today back. And I think we kind of go through our days and we're not very intentional about it. And one thing that happens when you stop and you pay attention is not only do you listen to someone else, but you can hear yourself better too.
0: Yeah. I mean, that's the thing about it is that, you know, nominally you're there in the role of the therapist and the person who is there is your client or your patient but it's it's got to be nourishing for you too and uh educational. You, you there's a reciprocity whether the person coming to see you intends for it to be that way or not.
1: Right, there is a reciprocity and it's not as though we're doing our own therapy in you know while we're in with our client, but we can't help but be changed by these interactions. We can't help but ask ourselves the same questions that our clients are grappling with about How do I love and be loved and what do I do with regret and what do I do with uncertainty and what I can control and what I can't control and what's going on in my family relationships, my intimate relationships, my professional relationships? How am I living my life is what it comes down to.
0: Yeah. Well, and I think, you know, maybe it's always been this way or maybe it's increasingly this way because of like myriad circumstances, whether it's cultural or technology or political, you know, everybody's got, and uh, people have work stuff. Everyone's got a lot bearing down on them. And I wonder how often people are really available to one another. There's a lot of, there's a lot of loneliness and there's a lot of need for somebody to actually have someone dialogue with them and listen to them. And it seems like even among friends, that can sometimes be lacking. I I feel that way. Sometimes I'm like, wow, are we really here for one another? Are we all just kind of like texting while we're standing around at the party and having intermittent conversations that last 30 seconds? You know, it's hard to find a meaningful exchange. And I think too, people are often so caught up in their own stuff that it's hard for them to be compassionate. I speak for myself too. I, I often check in with myself where I'm like, am I really available to other human beings Am I too inwardly focused? Like, am I doing the necessary self-care to make sure that I can be uh, open to other people and there for them? Because it just feels like the world is sorely lacking in that a lot to me.
1: Right, and we don't really have the same organic opportunities to connect with people in the ways that are emotionally nourishing, but also physiologically, they have an impact on us. So we're having this conversation right now I can feel I'm very relaxed and my heart rate is is down. Um, when you're texting and multitasking and doing all those things, you might be connected with lots of different people in that moment because you're interacting with them through your technology, but you're not really um, you're not really there. You're, part of you is there, but you're not fully there. And of course, life is life, so we can't always be fully there, but I don't think we're fully there enough. And it, it creates depression it creates anxiety and no matter what people come in with no matter why they initially came to me what i find is there's an underlying loneliness
0: that, that that's yeah that was a part of the book that struck me it was that you know obviously people come in with their depression they come in feeling anxious they come in feeling sad but underneath it all is i feel kind of isolated and lonely
1: yeah and they they feel isolated and lonely in their experience too. They think that they're the only one who feels that way and they don't understand why they feel that way. Because if you look at their lives from the outside, it looks like they have a lot.
0: So why do they feel that way and what can they do about it?
1: I think because they don't have what's important that they're neglecting it. They, they could have it, but they're neglecting it. And I think going back to this idea about compassion too, that I think when people get so focused on the task at hand, They become less compassionate with themselves. So if you listen to how unkind people are to themselves, if you listen to the voices in your head, so much of the time, these voices, they're like, it's like a bully. Um, The self-criticism, it doesn't stop. And you would never talk that way to your friend or someone you cared about or family member, your child. Um, And I think when we can stop and slow down and be more compassionate with ourselves, we become more compassionate with other people.
0: I think like sometimes people don't even they're not even aware of that voice in their head, right? They're they so have no in idea. it they have no separation because like I'm speaking for myself, but um, I've meditated for a long time and only recently, like only recently, have I started to be like, wow, I've been saying the same bullshit for a long time, and you you know I guess it takes a while or it takes talk therapy to sort of make you conscious of it. To start to see the patterns and the repetitions and to realize that uh, it's potentially really uh, unhelpful and even possibly destructive. I mean, that's kind of what you, that's part of what you're doing, right? Is helping people recognize those things?
1: Right. I mean, I'm helping them to do a couple of things. One is to help them see, to hold up a mirror to them and help them to look at their reflection and see the ways that they talk to themselves, the ways they're holding themselves back, the way they self-sabotage, the way that they're shooting themselves in the foot over and over, and then wondering why they ended up in the same place again. Um, And I think the other thing is that I really, I, I I I want people to, um, to make change. And I feel like you can't make change if you can't see yourself. Clearly,
0: So you're holding up a mirror. Yeah. And do you have like, do you feel like you have a pretty good like track record of success? Do you have, I mean, do, do therapists keep a scorecard for themselves? <laughs> do you know what I'm saying? Like you how know, do you measure, yeah. res- how do you measure results?
1: What's so interesting about being a therapist is that in any other profession, people see your work. Meaning if you're writing something, there's a product that you're turning in that people will see and they will comment on your editor and your readers. If you're, you know, working in a different kind of job, you know, often there's a team or there's, you know, other colleagues who are working on a project with you. When you're a therapist, nobody sees what you do. So they don't, other than your client, but nobody who is your colleague will see what you're doing we do have consultation groups that most of us belong to and that we go to weekly or which you write write about
0: those in the book i do
1: write about those in the book and and we and i i take people into them because i want them to see how we discuss the cases how we discuss you know our side of what might be going on in the room but what's interesting is that they aren't in the room with us so it's mediated by our telling of the story and um you know not only when we're working alone not only do we not get feedback on what we can do better like you know oh here's what i would have done in that moment that didn't go very well but we also don't get praise for a job well done right so nobody's saying like oh that that thing that you said there that was really that was really wise
0: there's no applause
1: there's no there's no sense of what you're doing well or what you're not doing well other than you can gauge what's going on with the client but sometimes you know i think sometimes not only making it more about the client than about us is i think nobody sees what the client is doing people heroic things happen in that room right really heroic things where people make you know take risks and put their vulnerability out there and make changes and do things that are felt impossible for them to do and when you see them do that It's a profound experience. And I feel like I wish people could see that.
0: Well, that's the thing you're getting to see, especially with patients with whom you are having some success and you've developed that trust and those walls come down. You get to see people with their masks off. Uh, That's a rare experience in human in human life we rarely see each other like that
1: and it's beautiful yeah it's really beautiful it's so much more beautiful i think than what we see with the curated image that we want people to
0: see on instagram and
1: yeah yeah and even just you know saying hello to somebody out in the world i think you know i think we hide a lot of ourselves i think we have so much shame and i think we we walk around with these secrets that come out in therapy so when i talk about you know what i see um There are all kinds of secrets, and I think I talk about in the book how Carl Jung called secrets psychic poison because secrets are so corrosive, but I think secrets are so much about shame. And there are all kinds of secrets. There's the secrets that we keep from the world. There are the secrets we keep from the people closest to us, but there are also secrets that we keep from our therapists, and there are also secrets that we keep from ourselves.
0: Can you you tell when one of your patients is keeping a secret from you? Are you pretty good at that?
1: Sometimes, yeah. I think it's, you know, those aggressively boring people (laughs) who most people are not boring. I think people worry if they're boring in therapy. And if you let me see you, you will be the most fascinating person in the world to me. But if you keep me at bay by telling boring stories over and over, or you go off on tangents, or when I try to focus you, you won't go there. um, You're keeping something from me or from yourself. And I need to. That's on me. You know, I have to figure out a way to get in there. You're doing the best you can. You're you're keeping the secret because it protects you and it keeps you safe. And I need to figure out a way to help you feel safe and also talk about what you really need to be talking about.
0: Hey, everybody! If you are a writer or an aspiring writer, or if you just love literature, I have a book for you. It's called "Truth Is the Arrow, Mercy Is the Bow." Well, and one of the things I love about your book is the fact that, you know, you're talking about your own experiences in therapy as a patient. So you get this kind of, you know, the full view and then you and then you take us into the, is it consultation meetings? What do you call it?
1: Into the therapy room? No. Or, the oh, you mean the consultation co- groups where I speak with my colleagues yeah, about the cases? Yeah, yeah, yeah.
0: So it's like, it's kind of like a behind the scenes, but it's also like, you, you know, you're putting yourself out there because you're like, this is me with my therapist. This is me with like, there's a, um, you know, for those of you listening, there's a, a set of patients who I imagine you've fictionalized some of the critical details. That, that's a question I had about patient, uh,
1: right. So the book is nonfiction, um, but I very much protected their identities.
0: Right. Yeah. I mean, cause you have, you, you, are legally bound to not oh, disclose.
1: Yes. Right. The interesting thing about that is that I was a writer before I was a therapist. And so everybody who comes to me gets an informed we all have informed consents. and in mine it says that I can write about my experience with them um, as long as I protect their identity and you know some people might not want to sign up for that um, I've had a couple cases where where they haven't but surprisingly literally it's been a couple
0: people like to be written about um as I long as, as I long as you're don't... not like as long as you're like you know if you're in, outing them and their personal secrets. That's one thing, but.
1: I don't know that they like to be written about. I I think that it just goes away the way this microphone goes away. Um, I think that you're just, they're just doing their therapy. And I don't really think that they're thinking about me as a writer because we're having this very intense relationship in the room and it's not about me at all in that room. It's about them. So I think it just kind of goes away.
0: Yeah. And they forget about it. And they're, they're focused on keeping their secret from you. I mean, that's a lot to worry about. (laughs) Well, you
1: know, it's interesting because people come in, I think that when we talk about writing and therapy and secrets, it has to do with story. And I think that people come in with a faulty narrative often, or a narrative that, that is getting in their way. I'm unlovable or I'm not worthy or nothing will ever work out for me. Or people think this about me and Whatever their narrative is, or even a narrative about someone else, like, my partner always this, that might not be true. So when I'm listening for their story, when they come in, I'm listening not only to what they're telling me, but I'm listening to their flexibility with the story. You know, I'm almost like an editor sitting in there. So even if I'm not writing about them in the moment, um, by the way, I don't write about current people. So all the people in the book are people that I'm no longer seeing, because I don't think that I could wrap my head around that and, and, and make them feel safe and not feel like there was something that there was a conflict there. So I'm not writing about people that I'm currently seeing. Um, But, but when people come in, I, I really feel like I am editing their stories because, you know, they may portray themselves as, as the protagonist when, or they may not even, you know, they, the minor characters might need to be major characters and vice versa, or the protagonist is going in circles. And, you know, so it's sort of like, what's happening in these stories?
0: You're like, your second act is terrible.
1: (laughs) Well, I think I, 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 seriously, I'm helping them to rewrite their stories. A lot of times they're carrying around a story from childhood, you know, something that they've been told about themselves that they don't even realize is a story that they're carrying around, but it impacts every decision they make, right, in terms of what they believe they're capable of, what they believe they deserve, what they believe they can or can't get. Sometimes it's an inflated view. You know, it's like the narcissistic defense. And sometimes it's a, it's a view that just doesn't match reality. It doesn't really um, give them enough credit.
0: Yeah, I mean, I'm, I'm curious about that. Like, like how much weight to give childhood trauma, which I think we all have in some form. Like things happen in life. Things, you know, they leave scars. And so you look back and there are certain things that occupy more real estate in your memory and you kind of revisit them more often. Like, I don't know how much credit to give that stuff sometimes in terms of how formative and impactful it is today. Like, is there a prevailing opinion in psychotherapy, like a way to distinguish You know, so if you went through a loss or you experienced Mm -hmm. a tragedy and it didn't even necessarily happen to you, or in my case, didn't happen necessarily to me, but I was, I bore witness to it and I I always think about it and I'm like, well, it didn't even really happen to me. I think maybe I'm overdoing it on this. Do you you see what I'm saying? Like,
1: I think that what you're saying is common that people minimize their pain, because I talk in the book about the hierarchy of pain, and how I don't think that there's a hierarchy of pain. So many people minimize their pain, you know, by saying sort of hashtag first world problems, or <laughs> you know. Um, but but the thing is, you know, and in the book I go from from sessions where I'm I'm treating this woman, this young woman in her 30s, who is discovered on her honeymoon that she has cancer. And then I go from that to, you know, my husband never initiates sex or the babysitter stealing from me. And I think that underlying those, those seemingly, um, you know, less important issues are things like, you know, what do I deal with rejection and how do I, how can I be loved? And, or with the babysitter, you know, what do you do when your trust is betrayed in that way? So I think they're, they're bigger questions and, I, I think that with our emotional health, we tend to minimize it so much. So if you were having, like, chest pain, for example, and, you know, I don't mean, like, massive chest pain. I mean, like, you know, you felt these, like, twinges, um, you know, and you felt that for a couple months. You would probably go get it checked out before you had a massive coronary. But if you're feeling sad or anxious, or you're grieving something, and you say, like you said, "Well, it didn't even happen to me. You know, well, I, why should I feel anything about yeah. that? You know, you feel like, well, why should I be? You know, I shouldn't really feel that." But our feelings are our feelings. You can't you can't wheel them away. They'll still be there. You can try to tamp them down, but that just makes them bigger. And so eventually, you're going to have you know an emotional heart attack, or that's when people come to therapy. And I think they should come. When they're feeling the chest pains, not when they're having the coronary.
0: Right. (laughs) It's a lot easier to treat the chest pains than it is to have somebody come in and like full blown crisis. Right. Which I imagine does happen. It
1: it does happen, but then what happens is you deal with the crisis, but then you start treating the real reason that led to the crisis. Hmm. And it's so much easier to deal with it before it becomes, um, you know, a crisis.
0: So even though you're a trained therapist, you've seen. I mean, hundreds, I don't even know how many clients you've seen. But thousands. Thousands, <laughs> yeah. Lots of people have come through your office and you've treated them. But therapists go to therapy. That's very common. Yeah. And, you know, you can have blind spots just like any person. It's a, the hardest person to see is ourselves, Right. Oftentimes,
1: right, I mean that's the the beauty of being a therapist is that you have the vantage point of not living that person's life, so of course, from the outside, you can see their lives more clearly
0: but in in the book, you talk about this breakup that you went through, which initiated your adventures in therapy with Wendell. That's the name you've given your therapist I, right yes, yes um, and was it did you have any trepidation uh, about going into therapy? did you feel? Like I I can imagine that as a therapist, you must feel like a certain sense of, well, I can, I can diagnose this in myself. I can game this out myself. I'm trained. I know how this game is played. Is it harder for you in some ways to make the decision to ask for help?
1: I think in that case it was um, because I think it's one thing to go to therapy as a therapist because you want to sometimes deal with the, the emotional weight of the profession that we're in. And sometimes you just want to make sure that you're understanding yourself really well because you don't want to bring any of your own stuff into those sessions. Um, but it's another to kind of be in a crisis and 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 feel like you know, well, it was a breakup, but not a divorce. It's kind of like the way people feel when they have a miscarriage, but they didn't lose a child, and then these these sort of silent losses that we again on the hierarchy of pain we kind of rank our pain. Yeah. Um, and I think the other thing was that you you can't as a therapist see somebody that is any way related to your world. So I'm surrounded by therapists. I I work in a suite of therapists. I'm in a case consultation group with therapists. Um I refer to What or, does that
0: mean? Do you guys like like brainstorm each other's cases if you have uh,
1: It's the it's the group that we were talking about earlier where um once a week we meet and we, somebody presents a case that they're maybe wanting some feedback on and we all chime in and offer our feedback.
0: Oh, that makes, that makes good sense.
1: Yeah. It's kind of a, a way of having checks and balances that you don't have when you're just, you know, it's kind of like if you wrote a first draft of something and no one ever looked at it. Right. Um, this is our way of saying, Hey, here's what I've done with this patient. Here's what's going on. Here's where I'm stuck. Here's what's happening. Any suggestions? And people have fantastic suggestions.
0: Do you have to like make, keep it anonymous? Is there, yeah.
1: So we don't, we don't, we don't break confidentiality. We Uh, don't use names. Got it. Okay. Yeah. we in this situation.
0: So, um, like it took you, like Wendell, the, the doctor that you ultimately went with wasn't the first one.
1: Oh, no, he, he was. He was
0: the first one you went to? Yeah.
1: So what happened was I, I you know, one of my really good friends is a therapist. And um, at a certain point, she said, you know, maybe you should talk to someone. You need to go somewhere where you're not being a therapist. Because I was doing fine at work. Mm. It was more about falling apart outside of work um, and really trying to manage this, you know, unexpected situation. And, um, you know, I, I didn't know how to find a therapist because I felt like, everybody that I knew was somehow in my world and it needed to be a clean relationship. So I called up a, um, a, a colleague, um, who I often get referrals from, or I refer to her and I knew she'd have a good suggestion, but I was quote unquote asking for a friend. Yeah. Um, and she did, this is somebody that she trained with. And, um, I described the, the client, i.e., me, um, <laughs> and uh, you know, got to Wendell, and I didn't. I didn't do a lot of research, you know, because I was. I was just going to go in for sort of crisis management. I didn't think it would be a long term relationship.
0: Right. Well, no, because I mean, I, I, I guess what the, I'm, I must be mismer- uh, misremembering the book, but you do talk at some point about finding the right fit. Yes. Because it's like not like you just go in off the street, and any old therapist is necessarily going to be the right fit, like, or I should say maybe. If you do find somebody who is the right fit, the benefits of therapy can be exponentially greater.
1: Right. So so you're right. Study after study shows that the most important factor in the success of your therapy, more than how many years we've been doing it or what our orientation is in terms of what kind of, you know, whether we do CBT or talk therapy um, or, you know, what our training was, more than any of those things, although, of course don't get me wrong, all of those matter, um, is your relationship with your therapist. And so I think people need to know that if you go to a therapist, I set it up as a consultation, and I think most therapists now do, where I say to people before they come in, hey, we're going to meet, and I'm going to hear a little bit about what you're coming in for, and then we'll you know, see what we want to do. And it gives them an out so that if for whatever reason they don't feel that I'm the right person to help them or alternatively, I don't feel like I'm the right person to help them. Um, I can help get them to the right person.
0: What would, what would it be that would preclude you from seeing somebody? Like if somebody comes in and it's like, this is what's going on with me. And you're like, you know what? I'm not great for this. Is it, are there certain areas of specialty that you feel like you have and certain things that you feel like maybe one of your colleagues is better suited to?
1: Um. There might be something where, um, like when Julie came to me, for example, in the book, um, you know, she was coming to me because of this cancer diagnosis and I didn't think I was the right person for her because I didn't specialize in oncological therapy. So I didn't know, you know, I I dealt with sort of people who had had cancer before or older people who were maybe dealing with it, but she she was someone who was young and dealing with this diagnosis and... I could deal with it, but i I thought that she might benefit from being around other people who were going through something similar and who had training in that and she really vehemently uh said no to that
0: she's she, a very charming character in the or person in the book she's
1: a she was she was a very charming person um and she said you know i she's like, look, they have affirmations on their walls and and the minute she said that, I just clicked with her and i I knew exactly what she meant, and that she was right. That wouldn't be the right place for her. And so, you know, I was very upfront with her about the fact that I really hadn't done this before. And she said, great, sign me up.
0: Yeah. She's like, I haven't done this before either. Yeah, exactly. (laughs) Uh, So I want to go back to something you talked about a little bit earlier, which is the burden that accrues, I would imagine, as a therapist, as you receive the suffering of person after person, after person, And how you manage that. Um, I can imagine, like, you have to do, like, it's the old analogy about, like, the oxygen mask on the airplane before, you know, you give yourself oxygen first. You have to have, like, a pregame ritual, right? Before people come in and start to kind of, like, pour their heart out to you. And after the fact, I imagine you have to, like, go decompress somewhere. Like, how how do you manage it? How do therapists who manage it well, tend to manage it. Do you have like a sense of that?
1: Yeah. I think we all manage it differently, but I think the common thread is making sure we're taking care of ourselves. Like you said, with the oxygen mask. So I schedule sessions. um, You know, If I do back-to-back sessions, I have 10 minutes in between, but I won't do more than five in a row without half an hour or an hour break.
0: That's a lot um like 5 in a row is a it's lot. It's a
1: lot because you're so fo- so if you're writing like I can think about my grocery list or I can go on Twitter or I can you know take a walk outside. I can let my mind go wherever it is. Um but when you're in the therapy room, you can't. And you're you're so focused. It's such intense concentration. Um so yeah, I mean everybody has their their limit. There are people who who do way more than 5 in a row. I'm not one of them.
0: But can you do it well? I mean I know sometimes you have to but because you know have...
1: but some people some people can and I think it just it's about sort of your your individual temperament. Yeah. Um I'm an introvert and that kind of interaction is very intense for me after 5. So I need to have a break. And you know a break might look like going in the kitchen and talking to colleagues and having a snack. Um it might mean reading a book, it might mean like doing some chart notes. Um it might mean, you know, anything. Um, but just having that break, but I think the the emotional part of it too is that I think there 's there 's this idea that we can separate ourselves that we leave the office and we don 't think about our clients and we definitely do, so we don 't we don 't take on their burdens and we don 't walk around with their burdens, but you know as you see in the book, like I wonder about certain, you know, when certain things are going on with my clients, I wonder about them. I, I hope they're doing well. I wonder, you know, if I know something is coming up for them, I might be thinking about it. Um, alternatively, when John, the sort of narcissistic Hollywood producer,
0: everyone's an idiot,
1: um, he thinks everyone's an idiot. That's right. Um, including me, um, you know, when, when he, um, you know, kind of disappears after we have that that session where I don't really know he left with kind of a, a cliffhanger, and then he disappears. I'm left. I am left with that burden, and and I think that that was done unconsciously on his part, but intentionally. And so we don't really separate it out like that. And you do have to take care of yourself.
0: You know, and now that you're talking about John, it's making me think of uh, something else you said, and I think it's in the context of his case, which is that um, there is a lot of uh, what's the right way to phrase it? There's a sexual element and an an intimacy to therapy because all that stuff or often all of that stuff comes up and um, it sort of gets a little, I guess, especially with guys, maybe does it get weird when you're, when you have a male patient and they're talking about this stuff and he sort of made some comments, um, you know, that were near the line. And then there's like, he's a television guy and and you're watching his show and there's like a therapist character who is like the hot, you know, therapist with the glasses and like the whole trope. So uh, I'm just interested to hear you talk about that part of it and like navigating that.
1: Yeah. I mean, it's called romantic transference. And I think that we talk about things in therapy that people don't generally talk about um, because it helps the client see something about themselves. So, um, you know, if when, when John was making those comments um, you know, are those your, I don't know. Can I swear on this thing? Yeah, yeah. Please. <laughs> broadcast. Um, you know, are those your, are those your fuck me shoes, you know, or things like that when I was wearing heels, cause I normally don't wear heels or things like that. Um, you know, what is, what is he saying? What does that really mean? Or, you know, we made a comment about a blouse that I was wearing and I don't really dress very provocatively at the office. For
0: those of you listening. I'm just kidding.
1: (laughs) Yeah, you should see what I'm wearing right now. Um, You know, so I think that that comes up and I think it came up with my own therapist where, you know, to me, he was this like tall, gawky, nerdy guy, balding head, you know, stoop posture, sort of, you know, when I look at him, you know, the cardigan, the khakis, the loafers, it's like therapist central casting. And the last thing I would ever think is that I would be attracted to him. But yet... Then he has this – I come back after he had been away for a couple of weeks, and his whole waiting room has been redone. And then he comes out to greet me, and he's got this sort of scruffy beard that he didn't have before, and his hair looks different, and his he's got, like, fashionable clothes on. And I'm like, oh, he's kind of cute. <laughs> like, wait, no, I can't be thinking that about him. Um, and so, you know, it wasn't, like, just the office that got a makeover, and, and it was very distracting. Um but I think that, you know, we react to our therapists as human beings. So you can pretend that my therapist isn't a man who's about my age, right? But he was. And people can, you know, John could pretend that I wasn't a woman who was, you know, in his age range and, you know, but I was. And so I think we we have all of the reactions that we have to people out in the world. We see people on the street and we're attracted to them. Why would it be any different with your therapist? It's just that the difference is that with your therapist it can get talked about in a way that is helpful for the client.
0: Well, and plus just having that level of connectivity with another human being is so rare that when you have it with somebody, so it's your therapist, eventually you're going to have some kind of feeling of, oh, I really like this person.
1: (laughs) Right. But I think there's a difference between liking someone and wanting to have sex with them. Right. And so I think that, yes, you you want to... um, you know, you want to like your therapist, you want to feel like this person really matters to me. And also you want your therapist to feel that way about you.
0: I was just going to say, that's another interesting component and like psychodynamic of the therapeutic relationship is that for the client coming in, I would imagine, especially there at the beginning, there's this kind of like performative element where you, you, you want to like charm your therapist and make sure they like you. And, you know, hopefully that dissipates as things get real and you develop a bond. But that's that's pretty common.
1: It is. And I did everything with Wendell, with my therapist, that my patients do with me. And I think that's really important for people to realize that they're not the only ones. So I wanted him to like me. Um I would leave and I'd see this woman in the waiting room and I'd wonder, well, you know, does he look forward to her sessions more than <laughs> mine or what is she here yeah, for?
0: for? Okay. So this is a good question. So if, uh, people out there listening, uh, have a therapist or if they're thinking of, uh, going into therapy, what is an, you know, what's the ideal way to ingratiate yourself? Like not in a manner that, um, is, uh, what's the word I'm looking for? Inauthentic or would somehow skew the the outcome. But like, you know, what 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 does a therapist want from their patient?
1: They want honesty. They want you to be yourself. Um, they want to be able to see you. If there's a performative aspect to what you're doing, your therapist will be on to you. Um and I don't mean that we're wiser or any less human or different because I did the same thing with Wendell. I want, you know, I wanted him to think that I was smart and funny and interesting and that I wanted him to look forward to my sessions. <laughs> um, I hope that he liked me better than, you know, other patients. Because <laughs>
0: therapists do have favorites. They do. It's just human nature. You do have favorite patients, right? Or people that you look forward to seeing the most.
1: I think that's a hard question to answer. I mean, I think that that yes and no. I would say yes that there are certain people that we maybe click with more um, or that we just, you know, whose company we might enjoy more were we not in therapy. But I think because we are doing therapy, um, we don't see people that we don't want to be in the room with. You know, we don't see people where, where, where we dread their sessions that's not, that's not a situation that we would put ourselves in. So if we find ourselves in that situation, we talk about it in our consultation group. We might talk about it in our own therapy. And if it really becomes a, you know, a a pattern where we feel like I dread this person coming in or, or I, or I'm looking at the clock and I'm wondering when our session is going to end. We need to do something about that. And if we can't, be the right person for them, then we need to refer them to someone who can.
0: I mean, some people are just a pain in the ass too.
1: Well, look at, but, but the thing is, that's what they seem like on the surface, but look at John. So John comes in and he tells me he's going to pay me in cash because he doesn't want his wife or anybody who handles his finances to know that he's going to therapy, he tells me he specifically picked me because I was a nobody, because nobody, <laughs> none of his television colleagues would, 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 you know, he wouldn't run into any of them there, um, you know, because they go to experienced therapists, they go to well-known therapists. <laughs> Um, he tells me about the cash and says like, ha, you'll be like my, you'll be like my mistress. Nobody has to know about this. And then he, he revises that and he says, no, actually you'll be more like my hooker. You're not the kind of person I would choose as a mistress. Now, right there, you might think, yeah, that's not someone I want to see, um, and I really wondered in the beginning, you know, because he was so... He would insult me. He was belittling. He was he was condescending. Um, he was abrasive. Uh, he was unpleasant.
0: No wonder he succeeded in Hollywood. Right? Exactly.
1: <laughs> uh, but But the thing is that once I got to know him, and I don't want to spoil anything in the book, but there's a reason. There's a reason that, you know, I think people's behavior signals to you that there's something underlying that is motivating that behavior. And whatever, people are doing their best. And I think that they're protecting themselves with their behaviors. And he was protecting himself by by basically pushing everyone away and keeping everybody away from him. That You couldn't get too close to him. And he was brilliant at keeping people away. But when I was able to get in there and find out what was really going on, He's probably, of all the people that I write about in the book, I mean, he's the person that you just want to hug. He's right. the person that you fall in love with. I don't mean romantically. I mean, you know, just human to human. Um, he's someone that stays with you.
0: Right. He's been, he's been through a lot. I won't spoil it, but definitely, and, and not what I was expecting either.
1: Not what I was expecting, yeah. <laughs> and again, again, you never, you never know what those, what that excavation will reveal. So when we talk about secrets, you know, when people are keeping secrets from you, you, you don't, you don't know what the secret's going to be. You might know that there's more to the story, but often the secrets are um, really uh, unexpected.
0: So you talked earlier about therapy not being about happiness; it's about emotional wellness. Like, what is it about?
1: I think it's about seeing yourself clearly so that you can make better choices in your day-to-day. I think when people don't see themselves clearly that they act in ways that prevent them from – from living the life that they want to live i i i know that sounds really vague but i think to be more concrete about it um somebody who keeps like charlotte in the book who you know she's in her 20s and she keeps hooking up with the wrong guys and she says i really want a guy who's i want a relationship and i want a guy who's going to be reliable and i'm I'm tired of all these guys
0: what does she have again there's a word and it's like a medical term uh, about feeling not being able to access feelings Oh. Is that her? Am I misremembering? Yeah,
1: no, that is her and I'm blanking on the word. Yeah, no,
0: know. It's a tough one. It's like as Lex Oh, as- um,
1: um yeah, it's like Lexa it's a- a- alexithymia. There, we, there go. we go. There we go. Yeah. I was like, Ooh, <laughs> and that's I'm a- having Alzheimer's. <laughs> um, but um, yeah, alexithymia. Okay. Um, where you you can't access your feelings. You don't know what they are. They're they're completely, you know, inaccessible to you. Um, And so, you know, she'd tell the story of like something good that happened at work with no emotion at all. Like she couldn't access her joy. Joy was very dangerous for her because it was almost like anticipatory pain that, you know, in in her history, whenever something good happened, it would be followed by something bad. Um, But you look at somebody like Charlotte who keeps hooking up with the wrong guys and she doesn't realize that she's picking these guys who are going to disappoint her. And if you can't see yourself clearly and what you're doing, then you're going to keep, you know, you're going to end up in the same situation over and over. And your friends won't tell you this. And your friends will say, yeah, that guy was an asshole. You know, yeah, he was a jerk. You know, they won't say, hey, you might want to get curious about why you keep ending up with people like this. Unless
0: they're your friend. Right? Would you help your friend that way?
1: Um. I, I don't do therapy outside of the office. I mean, I think I'm very honest with my friends, but I'm not there to be their therapist. I, I might
0: you're not because I I can imagine it would be hard not to diagnose when you're with people, even you know friends. Like you see something, how do you turn it off, or is it a relief to turn it off?
1: I think that also I'm I'm I don't have the distance that I have with my friends that I have with my therapy clients. Meaning, I'm very invested in my friends' lives, and while I'm invested in my clients' lives, I'm invested as a professional in a different way. Um, When I'm invested in my friends' lives, I have an agenda, right? So, um, you know, we all have agendas with the people that we love. And that doesn't, I don't mean that in a negative way. I mean that we want the best for them, but we have an idea of what might be best for them. And as a therapist, I don't try to impose my agenda on people. I try to help them see something so that they can decide based on their value system and their goals, what they want.
0: They can pick their own agenda. Right. So how long you you say it's about being able to see yourself clearly. And I know that it varies wildly, but generally speaking, like in in your experience clinically, like how long does it take for a person to be able to see themselves clearly like ballpark?
1: I think the issue is that change is really hard. I think that even positive change involves loss. And it involves the loss of what we already know, the familiarity, and we have to go into uncertainty. So it takes a different amount of time for different people, depending on where they are. In the book, I I write out these stages of change right? And there's this, this stage where you're not even aware that there's something that needs to change. And then there's like a creeping awareness and then there's, you know, awareness, but you're not ready to actually take action. And then there's action and then there's maintenance because you have to maintain the change. And I think depending on where you are, when you come in, where you are on, on that rubric, um, that will determine partly how long it will take. And the other thing that will determine how long it takes is, um, how hard you're working in therapy that if you're just coming every week and you're sort of downloading, you know, what happened, your therapist hopefully will redirect you, but you have to work outside of the room too. So you have to take excuse me, you have to take what just happened and you have to be able to in your life start noticing things when do, it's happening. Do you give homework? I give homework in the sometimes I give very prescriptive homework, and sometimes I give more general homework, which is this thing we talked about today, you know, like when you had that interaction with your husband. um I want you to notice when that happens next time, and I want you to notice your reaction to it, and maybe you can stop that that uh, the way you respond in the moment or take a few breaths before you respond and give yourself a little space between what i love that victor frankel quote between stimulus and response yeah, yeah, you no know, yeah. freedom." i love
0: victor frankel yeah he's, like, he's he, all over the book he's like well he's just a great like i'm always i've always like leaned on his especially like man's search for meaning i'm like if this guy can get his shit together after what he went through then anybody can do you know what i'm saying like he's such an authentic voice
1: <laughs> right right well there's that i think there's that that idea that no matter what our external circumstances are that we do have choices and I think sometimes we feel so trapped in whatever the circumstance is that we can't see beyond it. We can't see what choice we do have within the confines of the circumstance.
0: Yeah. So, and, and to get yourself to the point where you do see that you have choices and to start making better choices is simply to slow down, to see clearly. Do you see what I'm saying? Like when you're really in it and you're in these intense states uh, and life feels really hard, as I I imagine it must have for Viktor Frankl when he was in like a concentration camp. Like, how do you, how did he get himself to be able to create any kind of separation? You know, how does, and how does a person in a less extreme situation do it? You slow down, you.
1: Right. Well, if you, you know, I've, I've read a lot about um, the Holocaust and there are a lot of people who did what, what Viktor Frankl did as a coping mechanism. Like what choice do you have? Um, you know, you can either drown in despair, which I'm sure some people did, um, or you can say, I'm, I'm going to find a way to get through this minute, this hour, this day. And I think for, for people who are in the throes of depression, there's something very similar that happens or people who feel really trapped by whatever circumstance they're in. And there are some really horrific circumstances, you know, um, your child is killed or, you know, your spouse is murdered or or someone dies or you know these really really difficult things to to go on and live with um there are ways to do that and i i I write a lot about loss and grief in the book um because even though the stories are really different that people are experiencing loss in different ways we all do nobody's immune to struggle or loss and i think that one of the things therapy can help you do is to figure out where you do have agency, what, and, and, and when you respond differently, you actually create more choices for yourself. So if you keep doing the old thing where you're like, you know, drowning in despair or feeling trapped or feeling like nothing will change, nothing will change. (laughs) It's true. Um, You're absolutely right. Okay. So we can agree on that. But when you do something different, the world responds differently. And then the world opens up to you, maybe not in the ways, the the exact way that you had wanted, but in ways that will be so enriching and, and will lead you somewhere that you never expected, but you'll be so glad you ended up there.
0: Yeah. I'm fascinated by people in their ability to change. I'm also fascinated by people under extreme stress, like Viktor Frankl, who find that resolve and find those inner resources. And I, I'm, I'm, I'm I haven't read the book in a while, but, uh. I want to say he describes, you know, there are certain people in these concentration camps who it's like their last act on earth was to like give away their piece of bread or do something, you know, sacrifice themselves for someone else. And then there were also people in those camps who were like stealing someone else's bread, you know, so you sort of, it sort of runs the gamut, but, um, you can't help in reading that, but wonder like, what kind of person am I? (laughs) You hope that you're going to have that kind of grace and that kind of strength. Right.
1: I think that a lot of people, you know, and Dan Gilbert, right. Daniel Gilbert writes about this a lot in his book, Stumbling on Happiness, that we can't really predict how we're going to be in any situation, any future situation that we're really bad at doing that. And so he talks about people who have been suddenly paralyzed or they become blind or, you know, something big life change happens like that. And, um, you know, they lose all their life savings or and people are really bad at predicting how that will impact them down the road um and he found that that people actually um are much happier than they ever expected that they would be under that circumstance so i think that um how you respond to things is is very important you know we have inborn temperament which you're talking about a little bit but that's not the whole story
0: how much of the story is it
1: You know, various studies will give you, will give you various percentages, but I think when you have a person sitting in front of you in the therapy room, there's a lot to work with no matter what percentage it is that people are very malleable.
0: And what about medication in therapy? Because there's some, you know, there are certain schools of thought where it's like, no, you don't want to, you know, we're over medicating people. Um, I think most therapists understand there's a role for medicine to play, but like, where do you fall on that?
1: I think I work with psychiatrists all the time if you know we're sharing a case um, and you know somebody needs medication and talk therapy. the gold standard for treating major depressive disorder is a combination of talk therapy and medication um, but it, it it's unique to the person, so not everybody's going to respond to one or either or both um, and I think you have to find what is going to be helpful for that person. I'm a big proponent of medication when uh, and, and what it can do in the right circumstances. What
0: are the right circumstances, though?
1: Again, like- I think it's really individually. It's on a case by case basis. Um, you have to you have to see what's working and what's not working, and and also what they're presenting with, and how long it's been happening, and the depth of it, and. Um, you know, it, it's very much case by case.
0: And so when it comes to, like you say major depressive disorder, that's like people can't get out of bed. Like, you know what I'm saying? Because I think a lot of people, I think slash 99% of people deal with depression, anxiety in some way. I mean, I, I know there are those, like I, one of my old roommates was like one of these people who was just like temperamentally, like through the roof, happy. It weirded me out a little bit. <laughs> like, well, this is like a like a blessed neurochemistry. But um, most people, I think, struggle with it a little bit. And I think, um, like just from my personal experience, sometimes I'm like, is this just like normal? Cause I can get out of bed. I can keep my routine. I'm never just like, Oh, you know, pull the covers over my head. But it's like, I think people might have a hard time knowing how serious it is, or if it's just like normal human stuff.
1: Depression can present in a lot of ways. One of which is where you it feels like a huge effort to get out of bed or to get to the bathroom or get to the kitchen um, or to get dressed in the morning. Um, It can also present with what we call anhedonia, which is where you don't take pleasure in things that you normally would take pleasure in. So everything, the world is kind of gray. So it doesn't have to be like black clouds, but everything's kind of gray and that's another way that depression presents. And I think a lot of people can probably relate to that. Um, there can be an anxious depression where you are just paralyzed with numbness, and that's you're very anxious, but you're unable to do anything. Um, which is different from being in bed and being paralyzed. It's, it's a different feel to it.
0: Like an overwhelm.
1: An overwhelm, yeah, like being flooded. And right. so,
0: what do you do in that scenario? Like, what are something just like some nuts and bolts things that people can do? Because I'm sure there are people listening going. Oh my god, that's me.
1: Well, I think it's important to recognize it and not to not to minimize it because again, we don't want to have you, you know, sort of ignore it and then have it get bigger. So, I think that there are lots of self-care things they can do. Exercise is great for um any mood disorder, right? Um, exercise is, is like, you know, nature's way of kind of helping you through anxiety or depression. That's
0: what I always say. Like I, cause I'm like one of those people who I have to do something every day. And I'm like, I think in the absence of this, I might not be doing as well. Not that I'm like some gold standard, but I, I definitely think there's a mood regulation component to the fact that I like to exercise pretty much every day.
1: Right. And, and even if it's just taking a walk around the block and seeing green, Really helps. Right. Literally, the color green, meaning trees, grass. Um, I know not everybody can do that, depending on where they live, but um, but you know, have plants in your house. Right. Um, I'm Gross serious. I'm not kidding. Like, yeah. um, but but I think that you know, just really stepping away from technology and just taking a walk around the block. Um, it's like a like sorbet to clear your palate between courses.
0: Well, in contact with nature, especially for people who are city dwellers. Right, I think it's underestimated. Like it's one of the reasons I love living in mean, Los Angeles is a big city, but at least we do have access, and I love that. I love that I can go for a hike and like feel at least like a bit of separation. You know, you can still hear the hum of traffic, but like you're looking at a coyote. Like you know, yeah. you're <laughs> sort of suspended. <laughs> There's counts. a mountain lion up there. You know, I'm in nature. So,
1: but I think also connection um, really helps with depression and anxiety. Um, is you know, just again having those those conversations unmediated by cell phones mm-hmm. um, where you can say, hey, let's go get a coffee. No phones. And no phones. Just like, let's go hang out for half an hour.
0: A lot of people would be like, you're crazy.
1: I know. Well, actually, if you even call them instead of texting them to set that up, why are you calling me? Yeah, Wait, right. Something wrong? <laughs> right. You're in the hospital? <laughs> right. um, you know, but but I think the more people do it, the more that, that, you know, it doesn't matter what other people are doing and the more that you'll normalize it in your own in your own peer group.
0: Well, you say something... Uh, in the book, and forgive me if I'm uh, messing it up, but you say, you know, how do people change? They change in relation to other people. And that rang true to me. You know, it's not just this solitary, you know, effort to reshape one's life. It's done in relation to the people in your life. And I think the deeper and um, more nourishing the relationships you have with other people, the better your chances, not only to make the changes that you want to make, but also to be emotionally healthy.
1: Right. You know, when you asked how long does it take people to change, um, one of the first things that I want to ascertain when people come into the therapy room is how their lives are peopled. I want to know what their what their connections are like, who's important to them. Um, it doesn't matter if there are a lot of people in their lives, but are the people in their lives, even if there are a few, are they substantial relationships? Are they relationships that make them feel connected? And that's, that's you know, there are all these factors in terms of how, how quickly um, and how easily they'll be able to make change. And when I say easily, it's never easy, mm. even when your life is peopled with, you know, really strong connections. But I think it certainly helps.
0: I think as you get older, and maybe this is just me, but I think it's hard to maintain friendships of real depth. I think maybe if you live in the place where you grew up and you have like childhood friends or college friends that you're carrying forward, but I think it's hard. And I think as people have families and get busy, um, I think moms tend to connect better with other moms than the dads do. But sometimes I'm like, do I need to like start a group or something? Like the guys just never, it's rare that there's like a real intimacy and bond that forms.
1: I think this is a really important, um, topic, which is the emotional life of men, because men will come into therapy and they will say, I've never told anyone this before. And they'll tell you something that, you know, they, and to me, it's so mild. <laughs> it's like, really? You've never told anyone that's that? You, Are you, that's you kidding me? Uh, <laughs> that's the thing that I was sitting on the edge of my chair for. Um, no, but I mean, I, I understand that because women will come in and say like, yeah. And as I was telling my sister, you know, or yeah, as I was telling my friend this, but nobody else knows, or nobody knows, but my sister, my mom, and my best friend. And I'm like, well, that's three people. Um, and that's a lot. And so I think that men feel like, you know, they, they, they struggle with so many of the same things that women do around what does it mean to be a parent? How is my life changing? What does it mean to be a partner? How is my life affected by that? What does it mean to be a person in the world? How do I, how do I deal with my relationships with my father or my mother that I still haven't resolved? Um, you know, how do I deal with my sibling? How do I deal with these questions of worth and success that women ask the same questions? So I think that men are so reluctant to talk about those things with each other. So yes, you should start a group.
0: I mean that would that would be interesting. See how many guys I can get to come over and sit in a circle in my garage. <laughs> I have a feeling it would be a hard sell.
1: I don't I I, I know men who have really, really important social connections like that, really important friendships, but they work so hard to maintain them. Like they, they do, um, you know, twice a year, they all take a vacation together without their spouses or if they're single, you know, just, they just go as, as friends, the friends that they are, um, no, no significant others, no children, just them. And that's how they keep those friendships going.
0: You know, I got to do better at that. I have friends in college. I just live far away from them. Yeah, they do
1: too. And so they meet in sort of a neutral location.
0: Right. Like go skiing or something. I have this fantasy of going and like rafting the Grand Canyon. I've always wanted to do it. So maybe that'll be what I do.
1: Well, I I hope that the result of this conversation (laughs) is that that actually happens.
0: Um, I want to ask you about spirituality. Um, Like, do you have any like religion? Or is I'm or, Jewish. Yeah, you're Jewish. Okay, but uh-huh. do you practice, or is it more like I'm I do. A, a scientific mind?
1: Um, I do. I mean, I'm not. I'm not. I belong to a synagogue where you don't have to um, believe certain things about God or believe that God exists at all. Um, so I think that it's more of a, a cultural and spiritual connection. Mm. Um, my son was recently bar mitzvahed, and it was such an incredible experience, Um, not necessarily because of the religious aspect, but because of the, um, I think what it meant in terms of community. Um, And, and I think, I think that so many people today are are afraid of, of religion because they feel like it separates people. And in some ways it does. But what I love about, I think a lot of, a lot of um, religious groups today is that they support each other so when, you know, they when um, when you know the Muslim community gets together with the Jewish community, and we support each other when there are tragedies or there's hatred, and we try to create inclusiveness. Um, I think that's really important, and going back to how that relates to sort of our emotional well-being, I'm not I'm not telling people that they should you know go join their church or synagogue or mosque. Or, I'm right, I'm going to convert, um, <laughs> but but I I think that community, whatever it looks like, whether it's affiliated with a religion or not, um, I think that neighborhoods and community, and again that in-person community and being known and knowing the other people in the community is so important.
0: Yeah, no, I mean that's the thing. I mean the dogma sort of. Secondary, or maybe should be. I think it's really about people connecting with one another and feeling some sense of, especially in a city that's as uh, diffuse and spread out and like, unknowable as Los Angeles, to have uh, a foothold and to feel like you know your neighbors a little bit is unusual here and is probably like a great comfort. And I think if I, I mean, I, I don't know, I'm kind of talking out of turn, but I feel like. The Jewish community, because there's beyond the religious aspect of it, there's a cultural connectivity that I envy. I was raised Catholic and I'm like a recovering Catholic. I haven't practiced Catholicism for a long time, but I've, I've always had Jewish friends and I have like one of my best buddies here is Jewish and he knows other Jewish people. And I'm always like, oh, like the Catholics aren't doing this. You know, like, <laughs> they're not like, they're not like, they're, there's kind of like a, a, a recognition and maybe that's just me, but I notice it.
1: Yeah. I mean, I think just, I can only speak toward my synagogue. I think there's, there's, there's a, there's a warmth there, um, and a, and a welcoming vibe that I think, um, you know, I, I just think again, however people create community for themselves, it's important.
0: Mm. And I, you know, I want to talk to maybe a a bit selfishly because I mentioned earlier that like, um, I do meditation. I've done it my whole adult life. And I know you probably run into this all the time in the therapeutic community, both from clients but also from other therapists. A lot of therapists integrate it. But um, I'm interested to hear somebody who does talk therapy speak about, um, like, I, I guess, like medical solutions to emotional and psychological problems would be the one side of it. But there's also, well, I can just meditate it away. Like, do you run into that where people feel like they can kind of like, you know, like take things on themselves or find some new age solution that doesn't involve the kind of work that you see in your office with your, with your patients and talk therapy?
1: I think that meditation will help people to take care of their souls. I think our souls are greatly neglected in our very fast paced go, 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 go world. And, um, but I think that if you're strong and I think that it can certainly help with depression and anxiety. Um, but I, I don't know that it will help with things like noticing your patterns, noticing the ways that you keep getting in your way, noticing the ways that you relate to other people and how they relate to you because of the way you present yourself in the world. Are you always the victim? Are you always the martyr? Are you taking up all the air in the room? um, how do you How do your feelings about yourself, your self-worth, or lack thereof um get projected into every encounter that you have with other people? Um, I think that that is more directly dealt with in the context of an outside person helping you to see something that you aren't already seeing?
0: Yeah, that makes sense to me. Like I think where I'm at with it is like you might be able to get there eventually with meditation, but it's going to be slow. Cause you're on your own (laughs) and you don't have that uh, that person who's sort of guiding you. Like I I think back to a conversation I had with an author named Lynn Tillman, who has done therapy all of her adult life. And we spoke about that. It's like to have a, I guess, a guide or somebody who can help, you know, help point things out to you, speed up the process.
1: Yeah. I mean, I think again, it's that holding up the mirror Mm. and I think that it's really hard to, to see yourself clearly. I think that's part of the human condition is that we think we know ourselves so well. We think that we are the experts on ourselves. And a lot of times therapists will tell people, you are the expert on yourself. And we mean that in a certain context, but it can get misinterpreted. So meaning when people ask us for advice, you know, we want them to make that choice, that decision. Um, they know what is better for them than... I know what I would do in a certain situation, but I don't necessarily know what you should do in that situation, um, because I would just be projecting my own thoughts about what I would do. But I think that in some ways we're not the expert on ourselves, which is that we, you know, we can't see ourselves as clearly because we're, you know, if you think about the mirror analogy, right? Um, you know, we we're not we can't see ourselves. We're we're not looking at ourselves. Other people are looking at us, and they can see things that we can't. And so, so, sorry, I was going to say when sometimes when people get really defensive when someone in their lives, like a you know a significant other um, or a good friend, you know, says you're always doing this. Well, the presentation of that complaint, you know, wasn't optimal, um, and people will get defensive. But often there's a nugget of truth in the complaints that people in your personal life make about you. So you can say, no, you always do that, or I don't yell, you know. Um, but just notice that there might be some nugget of truth in there that can be enormously helpful,
0: and especially if you're hearing it from more than one person.
1: Yes, if you keep hearing the same thing from different people in different contexts, pay attention.
0: Um, so there is a TV show. Like you, this, this book got optioned by Eva Longoria. Yes. So is that what's the status of that?
1: The status is we are um, getting the script written.
0: Are you writing it or is somebody no. somebody else? Somebody who it? can
1: actually write scripts is writing it. <laughs>
0: <laughs> well that's exciting. And I could see it as I was reading. I was like, oh I can see how this could make a a cool show. So that's exciting, right?
1: Yeah. You know, I think there are there are these like two tropes of, of therapists in TV shows and, and films, which is either like the brick wall, you know, the the sort of removed cold. Freudian, although that's not what Freud was actually like.
0: He was on cocaine. Um, and,
1: and he was so <laughs> self-disclosing. He, he actually, he actually you know, was not at all what we attribute to him as, as his style. But, you know, there's that. And then there's the, the the train wreck, you know, the therapist who I think like in treatment, right? Or like there's all those weird dramatic things going on, which makes for great TV. It's a great show. But, um, but it doesn't really capture the experience of being a therapist. And I hope that my show will really just show therapists as as normal human beings, not this sort of heightened drama, but also not the very cold, removed, self-contained person.
0: Well, you know, you're hitting on why I think I enjoyed your book so much is because I'm fascinated by therapy. Um, And I think we have these kind of uh, trope characters that we turn to or we imagine in our heads when we think of this. And the truth is, as usual, like a lot more complex than that. And it's refreshing to just see somebody kind of walk you through the full experience honestly um, and to show it from both sides of the coin, which is not, it's, it's not necessarily terribly unique for a therapist to be in therapy, but I think it might be unique for a therapist to write a book about that process from both sides. So I appreciate that you did that and kind of like let people in. Oh,
1: thank you. Yeah. I mean, I hope that what the book or the TV show do is that they show, you know, they kind of demystify what therapy is, and they make it less foreign or less scary or whatever preconceptions people have about it, that people are disabused of those. Um, because I think that it would make people more open to getting help if Mm. they, if they want it.
0: So, um, last question for you, do you have, like, you talked about Viktor Frankl, but are there therapists and in particular, are there books that you turn to that are sort of like desk references for you because you love them so much? that have been written by people in the therapeutic community that you think are worth sharing?
1: Yeah. Um, I think Irvin Yalom's books are phenomenal. Um, He's 87 now, and he's a professor emeritus of psychiatry at Stanford, but he was a professor at Stanford for all of his career, I think most of his career, and he was, I don't know if he was the first, but he was certainly the first that I knew about who was bringing people into the therapy room. He would bring people into his therapy room. And that was revolutionary at the time.
0: What do you mean bringing people into it? His- Me-
1: oh, meaning in his books. So he, oh, 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 he would oh. write books where he would, he would, each chapter was a case and he would bring people into how that case unfolded. Um, and he's a, fantastic writer on top of it. So he told the stories in a, in a really engaging way, but he was very honest. Now we never saw him in therapy, which is, you know, different from my book, but, um, but I think that that's was... why
0: his books are not a TV show to be. Fair. Oh, but his books,
1: <laughs> his books are, 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 very, very well known. And if the, and if the people listening don't know about them, I highly recommend them.
0: Well, I think it's a, it's, it's a riveting read. If somebody can do it, if they can render it, uh, clearly and honestly to read about The contents of a person's therapeutic experience, because you're getting to like, it's the ultimate character study. You're like, oh, this person's being honest. And you're really getting to see beneath the surface and like untangle that knot. Um, I think for somebody like me, who's fascinated by people and talks to people all the time, like I loved it. Uh, so I don't know. I appreciate the book and I appreciate you taking the time to come over and talk with me about it.
1: Well, thank you. I I really enjoyed this conversation.
0: Okay, that is Lori Gottlieb. Her memoir is called Maybe You Should Talk to Someone, A Therapist, Her Therapist, and Our Lives Revealed. It's available now from Haughton Mifflin Harcourt. Lori Gottlieb, Maybe You Should Talk to Someone. Go get your copy. If you would like to find Lori on the internet, you can do that at LoriGottlieb.com. She's also on Twitter. Her handle there is at lorigottlieb one. I think she's on other social media too. Track her down. Thank you to Kill Rock Stars and band Stereo Total for the theme song music, as always. Thank you to Tiger in My Tank for the interstitial music. If you would like to write to me, my email address is letters at otherppl.com. Let me know what you think. Tell me a story. If you would like to support this program, I invite you to do that at patreon.com slash other pod. Become an other people podcast supporter. Don't forget this show has its own official app. The other people with Brad listy app. It's available for free wherever you get your apps. So, uh, like the Santa Ana winds are blowing. I think they're the Santa Ana winds. These hot winds in uh, Los Angeles. Every, I feel like all dry. This is what Joan Didion wrote about. It's like a uh, a feature of life in Southern California. I'll be back next week. T. Kira Madden will be my guest. <laughs>